I'm Rebecca Achanga Julia Bushell, and I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. I'm a former British champion and world number one, but I quit the sport just before the 2012 Olympic Games at just 17. I'll be navigating you through the waters of my swimming world as I remember it and as it exists now. In hosting this series, I'll also tell you more about my story whilst we explore a question I've often been asked. Why do we swim? Welcome to Physical Capital, a series centered around the human relationship with swimming. What draws us to it? How do we use it? What do we gain from it? And what can it take from us? We'll be looking at swimming from multiple angles to help paint a complete picture of the sport. We're going to be exploring swimming through the prism of physical capital, discussing the physical attributes that can give you an advantage in the water and how they've been used to achieve greatness, but also how they can be affected and influenced by politics, geography, and the unequal distribution of resources. But most importantly, we'll be speaking to swimmers, from those that push themselves to their limits in the swimming pool, and in open water, to those that swim for fun and for pleasure, and those who document its history. The history of women in swimming is a tale of tenacity, breaking barriers, and shattering stereotypes. In the late 19th century, when competitive swimming was in its infancy, societal norms confined women to modesty and limited their participation in sports. However, Pioneers defied these conventions and paved the way for the generations of female swimmers to come. A good place to start is Annette Kellerman, an Australian who gained international fame in the early 1900s. She was not only an incredible athlete, but she also challenged traditional swimwear worn at the time by advocating for more practical, streamlined suits. People labeled her one-piece swimsuit design as daring and risque. But she was ahead of her time, and the one-piece suit became the precursor to modern swimwear. In 1912, Australia's Fanny Durack and Minna Wiley became the first women to compete in Olympic swimming events in Stockholm. Durack won gold in the 100 meters freestyle, marking an historic moment for the sport. Over the decades that followed, swimmers like Dawn Fraser, Esther Williams, and more recently, Katie Ledecky, continue to push boundaries and achieve greatness in the swimming pool. Their dedication has been an inspiration to so many, but much like one of my swimming heroes, the great Liesl Jones, some trailblazers have openly talked about the physical challenges that puberty ushers in and how uniquely difficult they are to overcome. I wasn't ready for the ways that my body would betray me. When I say that, I guess you think of the most obvious thing, which is injury. But that never happened to me. Not seriously, anyway. Until I was 16, my body felt perfectly designed for the thing that I needed it to do every day. 
but puberty felt like it came out of nowhere and hit me overnight. For many young girls, this can have a huge impact on your performance in the pool. The commitment to the process means that you give your body over to the sport. But when your body starts changing, becoming immediately less hydrodynamic, it can feel like a devastating loss of control. Maybe we should speak to that in the frame of what it takes to become a competitive swimmer. Yeah, that retention rate of girls in swimming when you hit like 14, 15 is like, it's so heartbreaking. I welcome back my good friend, Saren Jones, to the podcast. As if swimming isn't hard enough as a woman, as a young girl, you know, and then your peers are dropping out because our bodies are changing and it's a male-dominated sport, so the male coaches aren't really talking about it or taking as much time as they should be to talk about it. And as a result of that, girls are dropping like flies. So the ones left standing are more isolated, more confused, you know, maybe more understanding in the sense of their bodies, but that doesn't make the journey easier. Yeah, I mean, in the framework of your developing body, what does it take to become a competitive swimmer? And I just wanted to add to that as well. You're also pretty much naked all the time, right? So that's another level and layer of complication that comes into your own experience of your body as you mature and as you do become one of the only women and girls developing young women on poolside. Okay. Um, Thick skin and patience Mm. is what I think. Thick skin because I hope things have changed in the age of swimming today, but I don't know. But 10 years ago when it was me, it really wasn't popular to be a muscular girl. And I wasn't even one of the most muscular, but I did have extremely defined shoulders. <laughs> I was literally an upside down triangle. I remember. Like, like no bunda, no legs, just shoulders. And there were other girls on the team who were, you know, much bigger. And we were all considered and, you know, unattractive by the guys because we mm. didn't have what was considered a conventional effeminate physique with breasts and thighs and whatever was fashionable at the time. We just didn't have that, you know. So thick skin to be able to acknowledge the fact that I love this sport more than I love the way that the world sees me right now through the male gaze. That's thing one. And that is really freaking hard to fight through. You know, I wouldn't judge any girl. I've never judged a girl for giving up swimming at her peak because of her physique, because it's horrible. It's not just having your peers look at you in one way, but it's also having your coaches approach you and say, Maybe we should look at tweaking your diet. Right. Maybe we should look at doing some extra cardiovascular training because we want you to look like this. We think your performance will benefit if you look like this. You've got these two like opposing pressures. And then the patience thing is just about being patient to be okay with yourself. You know, mm. it took me years to be to love my body. And that didn't kick in until I went to university and I started lifting weights. And I had a male, well, female coach as well, but I had a male coach who was very empowering. You know, he talked to us about how strong is beautiful. You know, there is beauty and strength, there's beauty and muscle, there's beauty and sculpture. If you're fortunate enough to have the support that can kind of help you have that patience and, mm. and, and come to that realization at some point, because everyone gets to it at a different point, then I think you're very lucky. And I think I'm one of those people. You know, Saren and I actually came up in swimming together we're the same age a lifetime ago a lifetime ago hey i'm not that old (laughs) and we were on poolside at the same time and you know you're just talking about your body as a 
an object in between these kind of two diametrically opposing positions really, really took me back to poolside. I I didn't hit puberty until I was 16. I didn't start my period until I was 16. Same. Yeah, because my body fat was so low. And I think that part of that is genealogical, right? Like I was having black genes, being mixed race, being half black from a genealogical perspective means that, you know, we have those fast twitch fibers, you know, we have that kind of metabolism that's going to kick in and make us kind of naturally in a lot of ways more athletic, mm. in a lot of ways more muscular. Mm. I mean, I was a rake when I was a kid. I was. You were, hu- you know what? I was actually telling one of our friends the other day that I remember when we first met, I remember just like being in awe of you. Not just because you were the only other black girl on deck that day, but like because you were just so muscular compared to me. I was, do you know how skinny I was? You were I was tiny. so skinny. And I remember going up, <laughs> seeing my parents, and they were like, oh my goodness, another black girl, and there's another black girl. And my dad was like, maybe we should get you in the gym. Like, maybe you need to start, you know, because, because yeah, you're very, very small. And I know also you were a breaststroker, so naturally breaststrokers were kind of a bit a bit more muscular in those days. Mm. And I was like a flyer. But yeah, I mean, you just had this incredibly athletic physique at a very young age. And, and it served you well. Yeah, no, it did, it did. But as you said, it served me well because... I wanted my body to do certain things in the water. And there were so many stakeholders involved in my success who also wanted my body to be able to do that. They needed your body to do that. Absolutely. But as a young girl, as a young woman, I hated having massive shoulders, huge thighs, no boobs, no bum. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it was this really, really fraught and kind of tense position. And I think for some reason, it was definitely amplified because of the color of my skin. And I can't put my finger exactly on why that was. But I think that it probably comes back to a lot of misogynoir and adultification that young black women face because we're seen as, I don't know, more aggressive. Fundamentally, it's probably more animal in some way. There's something really interesting about that because, and it's quite hard to put into words, but remembering how athletic you were. And I remember, you said, you, you mentioned your thighs. I remember your thighs. Like, because I didn't have thighs. I was like, this still has thighs. But like, I think if you're an outsider and you look at somebody as athletic as you were when you were when you were that age, right? There's an assumption that, okay, she must be so strong. She must lift all these weights. And then I think the build of that assumption is to continue to just load weight onto this athlete, not just the literal weight in the gym, but every other aspect of weight that comes hand in hand with swimming. Speaking to Saren really has brought back memories for me. I remember how much I loved to win and how some days I was so thankful my body was able to do that. But there were other times when I hated what I looked like and I hated feeling so different and I resented the sport for making me look like that too. To dive a little deeper into the impact swimming and puberty can have on women, I welcome back Dr. Hannah Stoyle. We have a huge number of male coaches compared to female coaches. So we have a lot of people who under, potentially just from their own experience, understand male puberty way better than female puberty. So knowing that, and we also know that a lot of science isn't done on girls, women, females. So we don't have as much information. So then we have someone who goes, 
oh, they slowed down. Maybe they're not trying as hard. What's going on? They're more emotional. It's more difficult. We have a potentially a male coach not understanding a female who then maybe loses interest in what they're doing. Their friends aren't going anymore. They don't really want to go. I think female puberty can be hard in that and it can start jumping than people realize. So they don't understand what's happening. And then for male puberty, a lot of times you can get people who peak really early because they all of a sudden they're 12 or they're six feet tall when their peers are five feet tall. And But that goes two ways, right? If you're the short one, it's hard because you're not winning. If you're the really tall one, you are winning, but maybe you then don't work on your technical changes because you're always winning. And then actually you get to 18 and you've never lost a race and all of a sudden everyone's caught up with you and psychologically that's really tough. Sounds a bit negative, but basically whatever happens to you, it's going to be hard. And it's really about realizing no one has it easy. So we just have to act with like a lot of compassion for people and help these adolescents also act with compassion for themselves and realizing that what they're going through is constantly changing and not to make comments for them about what they're eating and their size, their weight and the shape, because it will keep changing. Let's let them all finish developing and then we can have a look at what we want for them next. It's such a difficult time for both male and female, essentially child athletes. I can only really speak from my own experience, but for me, I was always treated as an athlete first and a child second. And being that age and going through all of those things, then having to get into a swimsuit, basically naked aside from a tiny bit of material covering a third of your body, well, that was a challenge in and of itself. But add in the fact that I was also on a diet that could sustain an average adult man. It was a lot for a young girl to get her head around. Yeah, so I think there are elements of that, right? Like you're constantly exposed and then also the amount of fueling that is needed. Like you need to nourish your body a lot (laughs) in swimming, right? The expenditure is huge. Making sure that that's done and then kind of the societal, like, oh, well, women shouldn't have broad shoulders or men, you know, summer, you should have a six pack, like whatever it is, or you shouldn't be eating so much. We know all of these societal expectations, it's this outside kind of commentary that really is what's most difficult. You know, when I talk to the swimmers or the athletes themselves, like within the community, it's friendly enough, but it's actually then what people put online or the expectation that you should look a certain way on the starting blocks and things like that. And I think because swimming is one where you do it with very little clothing, it's obviously exasperated. I definitely felt that firsthand, the judgment, and so many societal expectations that led to commentary on my body. But we also had a job to do, as athletes, as swimmers. And the reason that our bodies looked that way was because we were primed to do that job in the very best way that we could. I've shared my own story, and I've experienced life as a swimmer, both in UK and in Kenya. But I'm interested to know what swimming was like for Shika Tandon, back in India. So in India, growing up at the time when I was competing, you know, swimming was not necessarily a sport that a lot of girls were encouraged to participate in. And and a few things, right? Because as a swimmer, you tend to be a little muscular. You are swimming outdoors. You are getting tanned. And just from a social standpoint, you know, these were things that a lot of my teammates, their parents, their families, didn't feel like they wanted to expose their kids to that and so a lot of my teammates as they started growing up they started dropping out of the sport for these reasons so it was pretty interesting being a woman in the sport of swimming in India at the time. As I advanced in my career the number of female teammates that I had just significantly kept dropping off. I always had mixed teams that I would travel and train with but I wonder what it was like for Shika if so many of her other female teammates were leaving. 
So for most cases, I would, especially towards the end of my career when I was going for international events, there have been you know enough and more times where I've been the only woman on the team. At one time before the 2008 Beijing Olympics, when I was trying to qualify, I actually trained at a boys team, or rather with a boys team in Australia for three months because that's what I needed in terms of you know to just up my training and just be more competitive. Before big competitions. As the fastest breaststroke girl in my club, I would always train and compete with the boys, and it definitely helped me improve my technique. But not only that, racing and training against people faster than me pushed and spurred me on in a way that I couldn't imagine. I wonder if it helped Shika get that same edge too. It definitely did. I mean, I was training every single day now with swimmers who were faster than me, something that I didn't always have in India, so it allowed me to push forward. I think the the culmination of that training was a national record in the 50 freestyle, which still stands today. Competition is a necessary ingredient to all sports, and we know that the more inclusive an environment, the more competitive it will be. As we've heard, women have fought their way into this sport, and many others too, but not all women are meaningfully included. And like so many other communities, they are still badly underrepresented in swimming. Ten years ago, I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. Yet so many firsts are still happening. The Black Swimming Association and other groups specifically engaged in promoting inclusivity within this sport and many others are doing so much to promote better representation. But still, debate and issues pervade. Trans swimmers' bodies are being scrutinized and debated, and in some countries, swimmers' sexual identities are deemed illegal. Despite them representing these countries at the highest level, and doing so much for inclusive representation in the process, being a black athlete in a majority white sport means that I feel all these things so acutely. There is inherent unity in being in the minority, but it's also important to acknowledge that these experiences are all unique. The world of competitive sport is governed by the same power structures as any other institution, so. In order to drive inclusivity, we must each do what we can to be more politically engaged. This podcast certainly isn't going to have all the answers, so instead, I want to leave you with a question: Shouldn't we find ways to ensure everyone is encouraged to realize their greatness and to know that their dreams matter just as much as anyone else's? I'll see you next time for the final episode in the series.